is impossible, Andy said. I'm such a terrible husband and a dad, I'm probably too far gone for God to change now. Uh, this was uh, something he said after another huge fight with his wife in earshot of the kids where the language was bad and the solutions were worse. Uh, we had just looked at Ephesians 5 and the call for gospel husbands to love their wives just as Christ loved the church and gave themselves up for her. But to him, it just seemed like an impossible standard. And he was, in his own view, a case of impossible change. But is anything too hard for God? Or what about Amy? Amy faced her own impossibility. I just can't see how my mum will ever become a Christian, she said. This was after another long discussion about faith. Now, Amy's mum, the difficulty there is that she thinks she's in. She thinks she is a Christian, even though it's obvious in keeping with what the Bible says a New Testament believer looks like, she's not. And Amy's shown her again and again how the way her mum lives is inconsistent with what the Bible actually presents as what a believer looks like. But nothing seems to work. To her, it just seems impossible to get through to her mum. But is anything too hard for God? Or Rajiv faced different kinds of impossible. He said, I just can't see how I can get through another year with this depression. This was after another change to his medication. For eight years, actually, he had found it very, very hard to find any enjoyment in life, though he was actually very good at hiding it from family and friends. But in the last year, he had found that really, really hard to do. And on top of that, he'd noticed how dark his thoughts had become. He had tried changing jobs, he had tried changing medications, he had tried changing counsellor, etc. But the difference that small changes actually brought to his life really only brought about some temporary improvements. It just didn't seem to last. And to him, it just seemed impossible to go on like this. He felt that he was beyond the help that even someone like God can give. But the question is, is anything too hard for God? Well, friends, the obvious answer to that question is no. And that's the, the single simple point of this passage. Nothing is too hard for God. Oh, it's impossible, said Abraham and Sarah. It's impossible, said Sarah's, uh, Abraham's wife. I'm, I'm post-menopause and he's really old. I just can't see how we could have a baby and for me, it's actually, it's no surprise that God, it's no surprise that she thought that. I mean, Sarah and Abraham have really been made to feel the impossibility of their situation, the impossibility of having any children whatsoever. They were made to wait until it felt like it was humanly impossible. I mean, it's 24 years at this point in the passage since that original promise back in Genesis 12, I mean, 24 years is a long time, right? What were you doing 24 years ago? Okay, well, think about it. I was 16, I was sneaking into raves at Ingolston. 
Uh, I, w- I wasn't a Christian, by the way, just in case. I was uh, watching the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air on TV and making mixtapes on a hi-fi. I once tried to explain to someone what a hi-fi was. They were like, is that like, kids were like, is that like Wi-Fi? But I was like, no, it's different. Can't explain it. But 24 years, when you think about it like that, is an awfully long time to wait. Abraham had been 75 years when he, old when he'd first heard that promise. You know, you'd have thought that the birth would be imminent. You know, no time to lose and all that. But no, Sarah and Abraham have been made to feel the impossibility of having any children. Why? So that God could magnify his sovereign grace and sovereign power to them and to billions of people like us in the centuries afterwards in order to strengthen our faith. So that they could know without doubt and we could know by looking on that nothing is too hard for God. That's why in this passage, on this occasion of Sarah's doubt, God rebukes her for weak faith by asking the question, is anything too hard for God? Now, we're going to get to that. That's the main point. But before we get to that, though, there is something crucial to establish. When God rebukes his people for weak faith, and he does, it's not a threat to their relationship. I have to make that super clear from the start. It's actually one of the benefits of being in relationship with him. And one of the ways that God reaffirms that relationship is through a meal. And if you're taking notes, this is the first of two points tonight. God brings us round a table to reassure us of his friendship. That's chapter 18, verses 1 to 8. Uh, Meals play an absolutely crucial role in communicating the strength of friendship. If someone is willing to sit down and eat with you, it's a good sign, whether it's a few friends catching up after work or a couple celebrating an anniversary, it means, should mean, there's no real strife or hostility in that relationship. No, there's, there's peace and there's joy. They're on good terms and that's a good thing. And I think this is what God is communicating to Abraham in his willingness to accept Abraham's very keen offer of hospitality and have a meal in his presence. Verse 1 tells us that the Lord appeared to Abraham physically in the appearance of a man. Now you find that happening a few times in the Old Testament and uh, and quite a number of times, especially in the book of Genesis. It's called a theophany, a visible and even physical manifestation of God in some form. That's what's happening here. God appears as a man along with two other men, as Abraham calls them. But from chapter 19, if you read on just that little bit further in the context, it's plain to see that one of these men is in fact the Lord himself and the other two are angels. The answer's always in the text, friends. No conjecture, the answer's there. But here we see that this one man, this God, is in disguise Uh, He's preventing himself from being known in some way. Abraham fussing over the three men isn't because he knows that one of them is God. He's simply shown us what was typical of ancient Near Eastern hospitality. Abraham wouldn't have known that this was God actually until the two angels, uh, and two angels until later when in the conversation, one of the men, God, named Sarah, and very specifically, in a way that no human could actually promise a child 
verse 10, I will surely return to you about this time next year and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. No normal human being can actually go up to someone and say that, can they? Think about it. It's very obvious. It'd be quite fun, though, uh, if we wanted to. But anyway, maybe not. Now, you might think, back to the text, why? Why would God disguise himself like this? What's the purpose? Well, I think it's a test to make sure that we're acting and serving and loving our neighbors because of whom we love, not just because of who they are. You know, he's not just putting on something fancy because he recognizes regality in front of him. He's doing it because, well, we're all called to love our neighbors. If there's a difference between the hospitality and the love that you might show to the queen compared to the hospitality and love that you might show to, say, someone like me, there's a problem. Your heart is exposed. You're not doing it out of love for God. You're doing it for what you can get out of it. It reminds me, of course, of Hebrews 13.2, this section, which is surely a nod towards uh, Genesis 18, which, and it says, do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Now, it has to be said, this is a, this is a rare occasion, okay? This is the only recorded instance, actually, of God happily receiving hospitality from a mere man prior to Jesus coming, okay? On other occasions, God does have a meal in, if you, God doesn't have a meal, other people have a meal in his presence, and that's a remarkable and a special thing. Like in Exodus 24, when God has just finished giving the Ten Commandments, the first reading of the law, he invites the elders of Israel, along with Moses and Aaron, to come up onto the mountain, and they have a feast together in the presence of God. But any food that's offered to God on occasions like that is scorched, it's sacrificed, it's consumed, but not here. God sits down and receives the hospitality of a man. That's crazy. Robert Candlish, who preached weekly in this very hall over 150 years ago, said, what else does this imply but intimate and gracious friendship? Now, they would need this reminder when, especially Sarah, when she received God's rebuke. And especially after all that follows this account, as we'll get to next week, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot, Abraham's nephew, his painful losses, his wife in particular, judged for her disobedience and lack of faith. All of that might well make someone like Sarah absolutely terrified of who God is. So it's really good to know that even when faced with the reality of God's strong and just judgment on those who don't have faith, that God is a friend to those who do have faith. It's so important for us. We need those reminders too. If we're to be rebuked for lack of faith, it has to be understood that it's not because our relationship with God is in doubt, okay? If we're afraid because we see his judgment on those who don't have faith and fear that we'll be judged too, we need to remember that we have an intimate and a gracious and a happy friendship with God on the basis of faith too. If you're his, you're his. You can't be unhis. That's what he wants us to remember. Every time in faith, we take communion. Because it's no surprise to find that in the new covenant, 
God communicates his friendship with us in a meal as well. I mean, what is communion if it's not a reminder for us that we are friends with God? You know, fast forward 1,800 years from God's meal with Abraham. What do we find? We find God in the flesh around a table with men whose faith has repeatedly been described as dull or weak, saying so graciously, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. The eagerness of God to eat with his dull and weak faith friends is the occasion for instituting a meal that would remind people, billions of people, for centuries to come, indeed till he comes, that we're all through faith, friends with God. Yes? It's a glorious thought, isn't it? It is glorious. What friendship those words communicate. A friendship sealed forever by his death, a death that's memorialized in bread and wine, his body, the bread, his blood, the wine, symbols that your sin is real and not trivial, symbols though that the penalty is paid and won't be undone, symbols of the length that God went, you, went to bring you into everlasting friendship with him. If you're here tonight, friend, and you're not a Christian, if you can't say that the cross is the absolute centerpiece of my life and Jesus, the one I love. You need to hear this tonight. The Bible speaks as honestly about those who don't have faith as it does about those who do. Those who do are friends. Those who don't have faith are, as it says in the book of Ephesians, enemies. And it's no good being an enemy of God because it means you're still under his judgment. That's a fearful thing. But God has made a way to make you a friend, not through anything that you do, but because of all that Jesus has done. Living a perfect life, dying a death in your place, rising again three days later to give you a receipt for that forgiveness to say it's done, the price is paid. You have to take it in faith, turning away from sin and trusting in him. Why don't you come down and pray with someone after the service here, talk to them about that, or someone at the Connect Corner about the Glad You Asked course, or I'll be sitting down here afterwards. I've got a, a book uh, down here that I would love to give you called A Fresh Start. It explains this gospel that I've just given you in a nutshell in a bit more detail. And we have Bibles here, uh, free Bibles that we'd love to give you, give, give you uh, with a place to start so you can read a bit more about the kind of stuff that I've just been talking about in these last few seconds. It's glorious news. If you don't know it yet, let somebody show you. Now, what difference does it make to know that God brings us around a table to reassure us of his friendship? What difference does that make to Andy, to Amy, to Rajiv, to you or me, who wrongly think about our situations being too hard for God or that God wouldn't be that interested or bothered about the situations that we're in. Who wrongly think that change, salvation or endurance or whatever else is impossible with him. It means that any call for faith or rebuke for lack of faith from God should not be viewed, should not be viewed as a sign that we're no longer in relationship with him, but accepted as part and parcel of it. And we need that reminder of that friendship because point two, God does rebuke weak faith. 
God brings our doubts to light, but for a reason. It's to call forth stronger faith. Okay? Stronger faith. Now in verses 9 to 15 here, the camera is, is right on Sarah. While the men are in the shade, she's in the tent listening in. And she hears the promise of verse 10. It's been 24 years in the waiting, of course. But this time next year, laughter. Isaac's coming. Isaac will be born. Which means, actually, that in the following two or three months, she's going to get pregnant. And she laughs. Now, it's not a happy thought. It's not a happy laugh. Her laughter actually betrays her lack of faith. And it doesn't go unnoticed. Because here we see in this passage that God supernaturally sees our lack of faith. I mean, verse 11 and 12 shows that Sarah, in response to this news, can only see the negatives. Verse 12 is Sarah's honest assessment of herself and her husband. It says, so Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure... Now, the Hebrew language is clear here. She's talking about physical impossibilities, okay? So she looks at herself and says, I'm worn out. Uh, It could read the way of women had ceased with Sarah. So she's post-menopause. And then she looks at Abraham, of course, as old as he is, and asks, will I now have this pleasure? Actually, you can drop the word this. It says, will I now have pleasure? From him, he's post, you know. So... She must be, Sarah's assessment tells us a lot about how she views their abilities, but it, but it says way more about what she thinks about God's abilities. She must think that God is pretty puny to be stymied by something as mere and meager as old age. The God who made the stars would find this too hard. That's why a lack of faith And certain doubts can indeed be a slight on God's character, an offense to his ears. Now, friends, we have to realize this because God sees our lack of faith. Even if it's inwardly thought, even if it's not outwardly expressed, verse 13 shows us that the man speaking then is more than a mere man. You know, even as when we laughed at ourselves as Sarah did and thinking our thoughts as Sarah thought, God sees it, God knows it. As the psalmist says, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar, as it says in Psalm 139. If God knows to this extent, can I ask you, is anything too hard for God? And it's no surprise then, given his holiness, that he not only knows it, but brings it to light. He sees it, and God graciously exposes our lack of faith as well. Now for Sarah, he exposed it with one simple question, followed by one simple comeback. The question is there in verse 13, why did Sarah say, now she must have gasped, as she heard that question. She's been found out. Oh no, have you ever had that feeling? Oh no, they found that broken vase in the bin or something like that, you know, or something way more serious. Think how much worse to be found out by the one from whom, as Hebrews 4.13 says, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him 
to whom we must give an account. So weighty words. So she was certainly afraid. She realized whom she had offended. So she tried to blag her way out of it, as we often do as sinners. Oh, let's try, uh, let's try outward denial. You know, I didn't. No, I didn't. Or let's see if you can lie your way out of it. But how can you pull over the wool over the eyes of the one who can see right through it? Who sees all things and knows all things. I mean, if he can see through us like this and call us to account with one simple word, is anything too hard for God? That's the question. It demonstrates his knowledge. But secondly, the comeback is there in verse 15. After she lied and said, I did not laugh, he said, yes, you did. End of conversation. <laughs> That's all he has to say. Because God's word is absolutely final. She has nothing more to say because she knows he's right. She's like, And that's where the narrative ends. With her feeling deeply the conviction of her sin, the narrative moves on to talk about Sodom and Gomorrah and what the visit besides this trip, the stopover of the three men is for. But what does this mean for us? point is very, very simple, friends. God still graciously exposes our lack of faith. Andy's, Amy's, Rajiv's, yours, mine. He still exposes it graciously. He does it when his spirit speaks through his word. He does it when he convicts us by his spirit through the conscience that he has given us. So yes, that can be seared and anesthetized to what God says, but it can also be nurtured to be sensitive. The spirit's at work there. And he does it especially through our church family, doesn't he? When we speak the word of God to each other in order to point out the, the blind spots that we all have and we all have them how gracious he is to graciously expose our sin and our lack of faith at various times. How gracious. And the aim in pointing out any lack of faith still is a call for greater faith. He wants us to grow in the strength of our conviction that what he says we will do, he will do, therefore what he says, we will do. There was a kind of faith that has exasperated Jesus. Like in Matthew 17, 15 to 16, where uh, 15 and following, where a man brings his son to Jesus saying, he has seizures and is suffering greatly. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. How did Jesus respond? You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied. Now, that was not the outburst of a, of a tired man. That was the holy exasperation of a sin against God. He calls for faith. And again and again gives credible reasons why we should have great confidence in him. 
But the disciples, timid probably, later on that day, came to Jesus in private and asked, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, because you have so little faith. Wow. Truly I tell you, Jesus continues, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Now the point that Jesus is making there is really, really simple. Weak faith hindered them and subsequently dishonored God's. But it doesn't take much faith to do the things that God promises he will do through us. I meant to bring a mustard seed with me tonight so that I could put my hand in my pocket and bring it out and show you it. I say, you're not even sure if it's there or not, but I'm not lying to you, it's not there. But you wouldn't know, would you? Because it's so totsy tiny. And that's Jesus' point. Even as he's speaking firmly, yes, with the disciples here, he's not asking for much. Is he? And isn't he promising with that little faith that behind that lies his great power? Yes, he is. Surely he is. It doesn't take much faith to do the things that God promises he will do through us. There was a kind of faith that exasperated Jesus, but you also see in the Gospels, friends, good news, the kind of faith that amazed Jesus. Like in Luke chapter seven, there was a man whose servant was so sick, he was properly at death's door. Uh, and so the man sent his servants to go and ask Jesus to heal him. Now, he didn't ask Jesus to come and heal his servant in person. He said, I know you're a man of authority and great ability. What you order happens. It would be so kind for you to do that for my servant. I'm paraphrasing here from Luke 7, but he's essentially saying, uh, can you just kind of dial in from a distance and heal him from there? Okay? Because he'd asked because he believed that nothing was too hard for Jesus, even from a distance. And Jesus responds by saying, wow. He didn't say wow, but he said, I tell you, I say, I think it's wow. He said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Wow. He was amazed. Who was this man, a disciple who listened well? No. One of the godly women who walked with Jesus? No, a Roman centurion. He was the man of faith that, who, the man who had faith that made Jesus, the son of God, marvel, wasn't a disciple, wasn't going out preaching, wasn't doing any particular miracles, wouldn't go on to plant a church or anything like that as far as we know. He's a working man who knew that nothing was too hard for Jesus. So can I ask, which of the two are you presently? Which of the two are we in relation to the anxieties that are burdening our hearts right now? Because they are real. 
Are we more like the disciples in their dull faith or the centurion in his? Now, disclaimer comes in. Listen closely, brothers and sisters, for I'm saying these words fearing that I'm going to be misunderstood and emailed. Uh, Now, I get that, and my heart certainly goes out to brothers and sisters who struggle with crippling doubt on an ongoing basis, okay? I'm not decrying that at all, okay? I've preached from on this subject actually on John the Baptist's doubt, the greatest man who ever lived according to Jesus himself, many years ago now. But we know that Jesus does not break bruised reeds or quench burning wicks, right? So I'm not saying we're all terrible for having weak faith. I'm just saying that God rebukes us for it in order to call for stronger faith on the basis of the relationship that we have with him through faith in Jesus Christ. So please understand, that's what my aim is in preaching this. This is what I believe this passage is teaching us. It's not to condemn, but to call for faith in whatever area or to whatever extent the Lord shows you. To call for faith in people like Andy as he struggles to change and become the husband and dad that Ephesians 5 calls him to be. To call for faith in people like Amy as she struggles away to break through her mum's spiritual blindness. To call for faith in people like Rajiv as he struggles to know how to endure the darkness of his depression. To call for faith in people like us called to grow to become more and more like Jesus in personal holiness, to deal with division, to resolve difficult conflict and broken relationships, to give sacrificially and plant churches, to train pastors, to have that conversation, that evangelistic conversation with someone that we want to have but are afraid of having, to endure suffering, to face death all the way to the very end. It's all there in his words. He calls for faith in every single one of these areas. Stronger faith. Ever growing faith. So whatever on the human level seems totally impossible, in all, in it all, God expects his people to face it with faith and not doubt for his word, even as the centurion noted, is based on his nature and on his power. What he says he will do, what he promises we, we trust, anticipate. It'll happen because he says so. And if the people of God who enjoy friendship with God, with ever-growing faith, then our lives, our church, our world can indeed be very, very different. And the call of Genesis 18 is to defy the impossible that's in front of you, to live by faith and not by sight, And ask yourself, is anything 
too hard for God. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Take a few moments in the quietness yourself to reflect on that question. Your own heart, your own situation, respond personally in silence in prayer to God's. And I'll pray, I'll lead us in prayer in a few seconds.